Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Bacteria are incredibly flexible and they're all around us. There are a thousand bacteria living inside your gut, but we've barely scratched the surface on what are is out there and what they do. Plus, we don't know exactly how some of them manage to blend in with their new host environment. We also find out how we could shed light on this topic by building a massive bacterial search engine and how some particular fungal infections deactivate and fight back against our immune system. Now, inside our bodies, particularly in our intestinal system, is a complicated mix of bacteria. They're all part of your body's microbiome, which extends around you in a cloud. You all have your own unique signatures of microbes that live on and around and inside of you, acting as one complete system. And keeping those in balance is incredibly important. And we're only recently starting to become just how aware we need to be of all these microbes living on us and inside of us. And what their roles are, we're still not quite sure. What we do know is that we're trying to piece together which ones are even around and they're in the first place. And researchers from the European Molecular Biology Laboratory have been studying all the different types of bacteria that are living inside the human intestines. And when they were analysing this most recent sample of data, which they published in the journal Nature, they found something pretty drastic and scary if you think about it. They identified almost 2,000 completely new different species that have never been seen before, never been cultured in a lab, never studied in any level of detail. And we don't even know that these were there in the first place. It's only because they did a wide-ranging study that they managed to identify them. So that's 2,000 new types of bacteria inside of people that we just didn't even know existed before, let alone worrying about what they do. We just didn't even know about them to begin with. And the researchers, including lead researcher Rob Finn, who's a group leader at the European Molecular Laboratory, outlines that research is now at a stage where they can use a range of different computational tools to complement and sometimes guide lab work in order to uncover new insights into the human gut. But one of these new insights that the researchers look at is the fact that, well, at the moment they're studying samples from Europe, and there's a lot of studies and analysis on gut flora and bacteria from Europe and North America. That's where a large amount of the research currently is taking place. But that metagenomics approach is incredibly useful. But it has a blind spot. You need lots and lots of data from across the world, from South America, Africa, and Asia. Because just studying one set of people doesn't really give you a good insight. Because what these researchers found is when they cast their net wider and had a more diverse study, they found incredibly different types of species cropping up. Now, you see a lot of the same bacterial species crop up in data from European and North American populations. But when you compare that to the few South American African data sets, you actually get significant diversity, not present in any of the other samples, which means that you're potentially having underrepresented populations and missing a complete picture of the human gut. So using computational methods is great if you want to try and study the gut. But we only have a limited comprehensive public database of gastrointestinal bacteria to identify these species. We need more and more samples, and we need more and more people involved. As lead researcher Alexandra Almeida, a postdoctoral fellow at the EMBL-EBI, outlined. 
if you don't have diversity in your research and your sample size, then you can really miss blind spots. And when it comes to trying to figure out what on earth all these bacteria are and what they do, we could be stumbling in the dark and missing out a whole new area if we don't consider a diverse cohort. So whilst we try and study all the bacteria in your gut and figure out what they do, we need to make sure we look in the right places. And we can use new computational methods to make better predictions and analysis on the actual bacteria inside of you. There's some great research published in the journal Nature. From one type of gastrointestinal bacteria to another, there's a particular type of bacterial pathogen by the name of Helicobacter pylori, and it is found everywhere across the world, it's particularly because it colonizes the mammalian gastrointestinal system, and it's one of the most common microbial infections in humans. The problem is, many Helicobacter infections basically don't really have any overt symptoms, while others have some quite severe ones that are very similar to other gastrointestinal disorders, can leading to other things like gastric ulcers. But by really by far the most serious development of H. pylori infection is that you can lead to the development of a type of cancer inside the stomach. So one type of species of bacteria, which is incredibly prevalent, can have a variety of symptoms from basically nothing at all through to be a little bit sick to cancer. And one of the reasons why it's so prevalent and so strangely effective is that it has incredible genetic adaptability. Now, researchers from the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich have been trying to analyse and understand what exactly gives this bacteria its ability to impact in so many strange and different ways and to spread so well, and especially how it's managed to survive inside human hosts. And a key to its success, for want of a better word, is an enzyme which helps it flexibly control the gene expression of the basically of the entire species. Now, the protein itself, this enzyme, belongs to a class of enzyme known as DNA methylases. And the job of this is to basically attach a chemical tag, which is a methyl group, a CH3 group, to specific sequences in DNA. Now, this methylation of DNA in bacteria was first described as basically like a self-protective arm of what we would have in our own primitive immune systems in early development. Basically, inside the bacteria, it can recognize unmethylated DNA as foreign and selectively destroy them. But you could also use this same mechanism to weed out and hunt down any genes that you don't want to have, for example which enables the species of bacteria to actually actively edit its own genome and select key functions that it either wants or doesn't want. Now, this kind of methyl transferase are important for pretty much all species that are trying to regulate and control the DNA. They don't need to change the overall sequence, but they enable you to selectively turn off or mute or get rid of certain types of genes that you may not want for a particular purpose. But to actually have bacteria that are doing this exact same process like a major species is incredible to think about. And it's not just some small functions that have been regulated here. It's pretty much everything that you could possibly think about needing to be important.
for a bacteria to blend in with its new host environment. Things like metabolism, motility, and stress resistance, or the way it interacts with host cells, these are all tightly regulated and adapted, which means that this bacteria, once it gets into a new environment, is then going through its gene of expression, going, no, don't need that, don't need that, do need this, don't need that, tuning itself in to perfectly match its host, which enables it to thrive and survive in a variety of weird and wonderful ways. It just serves to show how life, particularly bacteria, can really do some incredible things in order to survive in harsh and changing environments, which is pretty exciting. But if you're trying to understand why the same bacteria may cause different symptoms or effects, well, this can go a long way to explaining that. There's some great research from Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich to analyze and study the way in which Heliobacter actually manages to blend in with its host. Now we often focus on bacterial infections as one of the most deadly things out there. But if you're someone with a suppressed immune system, there's a lot of damaging things out there that you may not even realise. You often think of fungi as something nice to add to a meal, mushrooms for example, but there actually can be something particularly devastating for someone with a suppressed or compromised immune system. For example, the fungus Aspergillus fumigatus pretty much occurs virtually everywhere on earth. It's a dark grey, wrinkled little spores has to wrinkle on a cushion or maybe in damp walls or in microscopically small spores that just blow through the air and cling to wallpaper mattresses and floors now normally healthy people have no problem with these spores if they make their way into their body their immune system basically squashes it all down but if you're someone who has a compromised immune system such as an aids patient or a patient immunosuppressed following an organ transplant well those fungal spores could actually lead to a really potent infection and that could be potentially fatal. The team of international researchers led by Professor Oliver Wurtz of the Friedrich Schiller University in Jena has studied just how exactly this fungus manages to knock out the immune system defenses and allow potentially fatal fungal infections to develop inside of you. And they presented this in the recent journal Cell Chemical Biology. Now one of the key factors involved is its gliotoxin, which is a particularly potent mycotoxin. And that's what's responsible for all the pathogenic behavior of Aspergillus fumigatus. Now, look, that, that's a pretty well-known and understood toxin because it's a very common immunosuppressive. And what that does is it means it weakens the immune defense system. But it wasn't exactly clear how this potent mycotoxin, gliotoxin, was actually developed inside the fungus. And what was the underlying molecular mechanism that led to its development and spread? So to really study this, the researchers brought together a whole bunch of immune cells and got them to contact with synthetically produced gliotoxin. So they managed to manufacture their own. And these cells, which were neurotrophic granulocytes, sort of like are the first line of defense in your immune system. So their job is to detect pathogens and eliminate them. But what they found, as soon as a cell comes into contact with a pathogen, like a fungus, it releases a specific messenger substance, which is a leukotrienes, into the blood. 
that acts like a signal flare, calling down the support from the remaining immune cells. Once a large number of immune cells have gathered, they can sort of squash and wipe out the intruder. But the problem is, if you have a pathogen such as Asperiosculus fumigatus, it can disrupt this entire process. The gliotoxin ensures that this messenger signal flare, the leukotriene B4, is prevented from forming in the first place. They're basically able to knock out the immune cell's ability to signal for help. They do this by releasing a specific enzyme, hydrolase, LTA4, which switches off the basically the signaling function. So as a result, when that fungus gets in, throws out its gliotoxin, the gliotoxin goes and disables all the alarms, for want of a better word, in these early line of defense immune cells. And the end result is the fungus can defeat and attack that immune cell and take root without setting off or triggering any alarms and acting squashed by the rest of the immune system. And that shows just how exactly it manages to break in and take hold in an infection's case. That just shows how fungal infections and other types of microbial infections can go and use pretty clever methods to blend in and also defeat your immune system. It is, after all, an arms race. They've developed especially to be able to turn off the functions that are there in order to help them survive. It's like a thief learning how to pick locks, but also then disable the alarm system or dodge through the beam of lasers. That's exactly what these fungals are doing with the gliotoxin. And it's some great research from the Tredicula University to try and analyse and figure out exactly what mechanism they're using in order to defeat our immune system. Which would help us now develop ways we can help people with compromised immune systems still stay strong against some types of fungal infections by making sure that their immune cells still are able to signal and call in for help. It shows we still have a lot to learn about different types of infections, particularly fungal infections, but they need to be an active area of research. Now we've talked about a whole bunch of different bacteria and microbes and if you want to try and study all of these things you need to know what's out there. If you don't have a diverse sample size for your study then you can end up with missing or finding a whole bunch of new bacterial microbes that you just weren't aware of in the first place. So the European Molecular Biology Laboratory are trying to build what they call BIGSI which is effectively a bite-sliced genomic signature index. If you imagine like a search engine, such as Google, Bing, you name it, well, they're trying to make that, but for searching for microbial life. It would enable people to search through samples of bacterial genetics. The same kind of search algorithms are used to find important videos or a new restaurant. It takes the same approach and allows people to basically look up and find out, has this been seen before? And if so, what is it? search engine was outlined in a paper published in Nature Biotechnology. Now, as we know, sequencing different types of microbes is incredibly important, and sequencing a wide range of them is even more important. But once you've done that work, you need to make that information available so other people know you've done it, and can use those samples to help promote their own research too. Now, if you don't to think about trying to develop something for a particular disease, take for example an outbreak of food poisoning where the particular cause is a strain of salmonella containing a drug-resistant plasmid, or 
which is a hitchhiking DNA element that can spread drug resistance across different types of bacterial species. Now, what the researchers could do is to easily spot that plasmid if it's been seen before somewhere, and that makes a lot of sense. Now, Google uses effectively natural language processing to search all of the websites. But trying to search DNA, you have to try and hunt for fingerprints or the imprints of billions and billions of years of evolution. So you have to develop a whole new type of microbial genome language that can be searched. So how to do this was a big challenge for the researchers from the European Molecular Laboratory. And the way in which they figured out how to tackle it is to build a search index that could cope with a huge variety of diversity in different types of microbe DNA. And as I said, the researchers, including as explained by Zaman Iqbal, a research group leader at EMBL, is they're motivated by the problem of making infectious diseases and antibiotic resistance. We know that bacteria can become resistant to antibiotics either through mutations or with the help of plasmids. We also know that we can use these mutations of bacteria and DNA as a historical record of bacterial ancestry. This allows us to infer, to some extent, how bacteria might spread across a hospital ward, a country, or even the world. And this search engine would allow people to study this at a massive scale. It basically asks, allows scientists to ask the search engine, have we seen this strain before? Is it a new species with this resistance, or is it something that we've seen in another species? Is it like something carried across from a plasmid from one type of bacteria to another? Or is this an entirely new strain that no one's seen before? These are all incredibly important questions that are fundamental for developing a treatment or a cure. Now, this search engine does complement existing tools, but it helps people get a better idea of what's out there and what's already been done. And as DNA sequencing becomes cheaper and cheaper, it means you get a whole huge amount of data generated from different kinds of bacteria. Eventually, we might see these kind of treatments and tests used as a starting point for tailored re treatment. People might go into a clinic to see their doctor and get a type of sequencing test first to help identify what exactly is wrong with it. But it sort of feeds back in as well. Now, building this big library of microbes and where we've seen them before and what they do was an incredibly important tool in the arms race against different types of infections and bacteria. But it also is also fundamental for enabling research to continue on to understand what some of these 2,000, for example, new bacteria living in your stomach do. So this kind of research doesn't seem like a lot, but you have to lay the foundation out there and populate it with information, which will be incredibly useful in the future for further researchers. This is a great initiative from the European Molecular Biology Laboratory, the European Bioinformatics Institute, published in the journal Nature Biotechnology. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Roy. From bacterial search engine to piecing together the puzzle of how fungal infections spread, we found out a lot about bacteria, the newly discovered ones inside our own gut, and how we can fight back against them to prevent infection. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.